Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, please, chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Today we are looking at the last two verses of this little section here, Hebrews chapter 7. So we want to kind of pull this together and put a nice little bow on it so we can keep this one thought together here. Hebrews chapter 7. Remember, it began in verse 11. Verses 1 to 10 was the first part, right? Verses 11 to 19 is the second part. And then from 20 to the end of the chapter is the third part of this chapter, this message, three distinct messages here. And so we study here, he's been introducing us to this idea that Jesus is a high priest of a different kind. He's different than a Levitical priest. He's heteros, a different kind, different kind of priest. He's not from the Levitical order. He's not from the line of Aaron, not from the line of Levi. He is from the order of Melchizedek, okay? And, of course, we spent verses 1 through 10 learning all about Melchizedek and spinning your heads with all that information about who he is. Now, that wasn't an easy message for these Christian believers in the book of Hebrews to hear that there was a new high priest and a new system because everything they did was centered around the law and the priests and the sacrifices and the temple. Everything they knew, everything they thought was central to what they believed in, all revolved around those things. And here comes the author of Hebrews, and he's saying those were all good, and they served their purpose. However, they're not as good with what you already have with Christ. You have something far better. As a matter of fact, God's plan all along was never to have the law be forever, and he's going to go about and show them why that the law accomplished only what it was intended to do. It could do nothing more. That's going to be the focus of our subject here today. Why was the priesthood and so important to these coming out of Judaism? Remember, all they ever wanted was access to God. They just wanted to draw near to God. They just wanted to be in his presence. And if you've been a believer for any length of time, that's what you want too, isn't it? You just want to draw near into his presence and be enveloped by him. You just want to draw near to him and draw closer to him and to know him more and more and more. You want to be in his presence as often as you can every single day. That's what they wanted too. The Jews, though, understood inherently that God was unapproachable. Why was he unapproachable? Because of their sin, because of our sin, right? Because we're sinful and God is holy, we cannot just come into God's presence any way that we choose. Uh, And we looked at several passages. Remember Exodus 19, when God's presence rested on the mountain, and he said, don't you set a foot, don't even set a foot near the base of the mountain. Don't you even let an animal set a a hoof, if you will, near the base of the mountain, because if they do, they will surely die. Why? Because of our sinfulness. We cannot come into God's presence like that, uninvited. They knew they couldn't come in on their own terms. They couldn't just casually walk into the Holy of Holies. They knew that they needed a mediator. But not just any mediator. They needed a mediator that God had designated as a mediator. Remember when we looked at, in Numbers, when Korah tried to usurp God's mediator and said, hey, you know, it's great that Moses and Aaron are mediators, but what's so special about those two? We can do this ourselves. And remember, 
the earth opened up and swallowed them, all 250 of them, who thought that was a good idea. <clears throat> Under the law, the mediator was the high priest. Each priest had to come from the tribe of Levi uh, and from the line of Aaron. But the author of Hebrews has proposed that Christ is our great high priest, and his priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. This whole passage, verses 11 through 19, is about drawing near to God. I want you to remember that. This whole passage is about drawing near to God. Drawing near to God, as I said, is the goal of every single believer, both in the Old and the New Testament. And that has been God's redemptive plan all along. Do you remember in Genesis how Adam and Eve walked with God in the presence of God in the coolness of the garden? That's God's desire for all of his children, right? And in Revelation, we see at the end where that's restored yet again. God wants us near him. He knows we're dependent upon him. And for all true believers, that's our desire is to be as close to him as possible. We do that through the reading of his word, through his indwelling Holy Spirit, and through prayer. We come into his very presence. That's our desire. That was their desire as well. And that's been God's redemptive plan from the very beginning, from Genesis 3 on, is to reconcile man to God so that he can come into his presence and have unhindered access to him. That has been God's plan from the very beginning. Every Old Testament saint wanted to have access to God to be in his presence, so does every New Testament saint. The author of Hebrews is saying, it's essential that you understand that Jesus is a priest of a different kind. Because something has changed. It's changed in the law, it's changed in the priesthood, and it's changed in the priest, who's the mediator now. All so that you can have unhindered access to God. Because this priesthood and new priests are ushering in a new covenant, and this new covenant, which we'll learn about next week, is better than the old covenant through which they were under. And this new covenant and the new priesthood of Jesus are better because they provide a way for us to draw near to God. So we're going to review quickly verses 11 through 17. Just remember where we're up to because I know a couple of you missed some weeks here. And this is kind of the summary of this whole chapter, or not whole chapter, this whole section. So we're going to do that. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again, for just the truth of your word. Lord, it is our heart's desire to draw near to you. Every believer in here, Lord, that's their heart's desire, to be guided, to be directed. Lord, at times admonished, exhorted, to be encouraged, to just be in your presence. Lord, that is our desire now. That was the old saints' desire then, Lord. And your word has provided a way, Lord, through this new covenant, through this new priesthood, through this new great high priest that accomplishes something that the Old Testament saints could only dream about. So, Father, be with us now in this hour. Open up our hearts and minds to your wonderful truth. And I pray, Lord, you be glorified through through it all. There's this entire worship service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you're in chapter 7. Go back and look at verse 11. We'll go through quickly so we can bring up to speed. We want to get to the last two verses here this morning. So verse 11, 
point, our first point was perfection. Remember, perfection cannot be obtained through the Levitical priesthood. What is perfection? Perfection in Scripture means coming to completement or a fulfillment, being what something or someone is meant to be. That's what, that's what uh, perfection means. When God says be perfect, right? He means come to the full maturity of all that you're supposed to be. Grow in godliness and maturity to the point of all that I have planned for you. To fulfill all the works I have prepared for you before time began. All of that to be, to grow in godliness every day. But the author of Hebrews uses it in a different way. It's similar, but he uses it in a way where it means uh, to have a right relationship with God to be reconciled to God, to have access to God, so that you can be all that God has intended you to be, to be that complete fulfillment. So he uses it more in the context of, well, how do we get to that point where we can fulfill all that God has required of us? And he's saying to be perfection is when we have, we are reconciled to God, we have a right standing before God, and we have access to God continually. That's how the author of Hebrews means it. And that's important because in order for us to have a right relationship with God, then it involves the removal of sin, which lies as an obstacle preventing us from having access to God and fellowship with him. And that was the function of the priesthood. They were supposed to be the ones who would, through the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the rituals, provide us access to God. The priesthood was the conduit for the people receiving the law. It was designed to establish reconciliation so we would have a right standing before God and thus have access to him. But the law and the priesthood minister it could only provide a temporary covering. They couldn't provide final and complete fulfillment of what God desired to have that unhindered access to him at any time. They could only do it temporarily because through their sacrifices and through their ceremonies and through their rituals, through the administration of the law, they could just point to a picture of what would happen when Christ came. They could only do it temporarily. So how do we know for sure that we need a different kind of priesthood? Remember, we looked at Psalm 110, and we said if the Levitical priesthood was meant to bring about perfection, God never would have prophesied about a new priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. He never would have said, hey, there's going to be a new priesthood coming along. And we saw that in Psalm 110, verse 4. And in that psalm, which David wrote, they had already been under the law for 500 years. But he says, hey, there's a new priesthood coming along. This one not from the Levites. And in that psalm, which is about the Messiah, David predicts that the Messiah will sit at God's right hand as a king and a priest. And remember, under the Levitical priesthood, you could be one or the other, but you couldn't be both. But David prophesied through the Holy Spirit that this Messiah would be both. So the argument is, if the Levitical priesthood and the law are able to bring about perfection and completion, why did God predict this new priesthood? The answer is the Levitical priesthood could not accomplish that. So, point number one, perfection could not be obtained through the Levitical priesthood. How do we know that? Because God prophesied that there would be another one later. Point number two, we see in verse 12. Let's look at that. 
For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes, change, takes place a change also. To demonstrate how obvious it is that there is going to be a change in the priesthood and the law, the author states what everybody... I'm sorry, I skipped down here. If God intended all along to bring another, a different kind of priest and another priesthood, then that would by necessitate a change in the law because you couldn't be a priest and a king under the old law. Verse point three, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is that high priest from the order of Melchizedek. That's point number three. To demonstrate again how obvious that was, he says, listen, everybody knows Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And yet, it's clear that he is a priest. Nowhere in any of the Mosaic law was there a provision for any other tribe or from anyone from the tribe of Judah to minister as a priest. Matter of fact, there's only one example of one from there who tried to do that, and he ended up with leprosy when he tried to do that. And yet, Jesus is called a priest by God. Verses 15 and 16, we saw point number four. Christ's priesthood can obtain perfection because it's based on the power of an indestructible life. Christ's priesthood can attain perfection because it's based on the power of his indestructible life. And we saw that in verses 15 to 17. Levitical priests were ordained, were ordained only if they could prove they were from the right lineage. Had nothing to do with their spiritual qualifications at all. If you were born into the right tribe and you didn't have any blemishes, there were 142 different criteria for blemishes, as long as you didn't have one of those 142 and you were born from the right tribe, you could be a priest. That was it. All of the criteria were external. And so, but Jesus has been declared a priest of a different kind, not having descended from the tribe of Levi, but having been set apart from the order of Melchizedek. And then it says the reason he's been set apart is according to the power of an indestructible life. And that, remember, is a reference to the resurrection, right? The death could not hold him. He's a different kind of priest. Think how different that was from the Levitical priesthood, like I said. They had to be from the right ancestry. They had to have all, no physical blemishes, external, external, external. And here comes Jesus, our great high priest, and all of his qualifications are internal. He has no beginning and no end. He has a perpetual priesthood. He's the Son of God. He is eternal. All of his requirements are internal versus all of theirs as external. Then in verse 17, to wrap it all up, remember, he then quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, once again. References and points back to that. Remember in that psalm, you have God the Father speaking to God the Son, saying, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the resurrection not only declared Jesus to be the Son, but it also marks the inauguration of Christ as our great high priest. And that brings us to our last couple of verses, verses 18 and 19. And let's look at verse 18 first, point, bring about point number five. The law cannot bring perfection. The law 
cannot bring perfection. Look at verse 18, shall we, together. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Verse 18, the author of Hebrews now follows his point about Christ's eternal priesthood and how much better that is than the Levitical one by pointing out what is wrong with the former commandments and the former law which they had held in high esteem. He says there's three things wrong with the law that you need to understand. First of all, he says it is weak. Second, it is useless. Three, it needs to be set aside. He says it's weak, it's useless, and it needs to be set aside. Now, how was the law weak? Well, it was weak because the law could never bring about complete reconciliation with God. In that vein, in that form, the law could never bring about what God had intended, which was to be reconciled to him. So as good as the law was, and in serving the purposes that the law did, it was weak in this area because it could never bring about what God intended. What has God intended? Remember from the very beginning, he wants us to be reconciled to him. He wants us to have a right standing before him, and he wants us to have access to him. But the law was weak in that form. He could never bring about complete reconciliation with God through the forgiveness of our sins. Remember, every sacrifice they made, every ceremony they went through, every ritual that they did was only temporary. Because the next time you sin, you try to write back to the temple again, and away you did, you made another sacrifice, you spilt more blood, and you still didn't have access to God. You still stood outside where the priest went in and made your sacrifice. So it was weak in that it could never bring about reconciliation. Remember, sin is the barrier between us and God. And our sin needed to be atoned for in order for us to have complete and eternal forgiveness with God. Neither the law nor the priest who administered the law could bring that to fulfillment. They could not bring that to completion. The best the law and the Levitical priesthood could do was a temporary covering of those sins, just a picture of what Christ would accomplish at the cross. In short, the law, through its systems of sacrifices, rituals, ceremonies, in other words, works, could never bring about salvation. And without the ability to bring about salvation, the law was weak. Secondly, the law was not only characterized by its weakness, but also by its uselessness. How was the law useless? Well, first let me tell you that the law's uselessness must not be regarded as being totally worthless. I'll explain that in a few minutes. The law was useless in creating access to God. Right? It was weak because we couldn't be reconciled. It was useless because it couldn't accomplish what it was intended, which was to give us access to God. Without the atonement for sin, without the atonement for sin, there is no forgiveness of sins. And without the forgiveness of sins, there is no salvation. 
And without salvation, there is no justification, which means I'm, not, I'm declared not guilty before God. And without any justification, there is no righteousness. And without righteousness before God, there is no reconciliation with him. And without reconciliation with God, there is no access to God. That is gospel truth. The result, point three, the law must be set aside. That word for setting aside is actually a legal term. It means to be annulled. It means to be annulled. There's no doubt that the writer does not mean that the law itself is annulled, but that portion of the law that could not bring about perfection. That's what he's talking about. That part of the law. Specifically, what has been set aside is not the entire law itself, but the part of the law that regulates the priesthood, which was what? All of the ceremonial laws, all of the sacrifices, the rituals, and this is the reason for the parentheses. Did you notice that in your text? He puts a little parentheses there at the beginning of verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Now you might be asking yourself about this point. Hey, Pastor Ron, I thought the law was perfect. Doesn't Psalm 19.4 tell us the law is perfect? Yeah, it sure does. And then Paul explains in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. How do those two things mesh? How can the law be perfect and not perfect at the same time? Well, the answer is that the law is both perfect and imperfect. How about that? It's perfect in the sense that the law reflects the very character of God the very essence of who God is. In that sense, it's perfect. But it's imperfect in its results. It does indeed convey to us God's righteousness, but the law by itself cannot bring about right standing before God. So it's both perfect in what it conveys to us about God. It's imperfect in its ability to accomplish reconciliation and a right standing with God. The law cannot do those, any of those things. See, the problem was in the weakness of the sinful flesh that could not keep the law. The law was perfect, but we could not keep a perfect law, could we? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Keep your thumb here in Hebrews 7. Let's just look at a couple of passages here. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Again, the law is holy and perfect. It's that we're not. We could not keep God's holy, perfect law. And it would only take one time before 
we were in sin again. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Go back a page here, beginning in verse 12. One reason that God instituted the law was to show us the utter sinfulness of our hearts, it says in Romans 7, verse 12. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for, uh, for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Translation, the law shows us how deeply flawed and sinful our hearts really are and how far apart we are from God's holy standard. It was never designed to bring sinners near to God. The law was intended to reveal our sin. Go back to Romans 3, verse 20 for a second. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified or declared not guilty in his sight. For through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Now turn over to Galatians on our way back to Hebrews. Stop off at Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Couldn't find it? That's because I was in Ephesians. Here we go. Galatians chapter 3, 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor or schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, declared not guilty. How? By faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law's purpose was to reveal our sin. Not to redeem us, not to reconcile us, but to reveal how far apart we are. This is what the author means in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, where he says, The law made nothing perfect. It couldn't do it. It was never designed to do it. It was merely a tutor, a guide, a schoolmaster to say, Here's how far apart your sinful, deceitful hearts are away from God. And you have no chance of reconciling yourself to God in your own merit, under your own power, by any works that you think you could do that would be pleasing to God. Matter of fact, any work that you take upon yourself that you think puts you in a right standing with God is called self-righteousness, and that is repugnant to God. That you would come up with your own standard for righteousness and declare yourself righteous before a holy and perfect and righteous God. He says, that's self-righteousness. And the sacrifices prescribed by the law could never cleanse the sinner's conscience or take away his sins. They're merely recognizing that he had sinned and that he needed a mediator before God. Sinners Sinners were even prevented from entering the Holy of Holies. No amount of sacrifices, 
nor ceremonies, nor rituals, nor works of any kind can ever save us. Ever. None. Zero. Zip. Go over to Titus chapter 3. We're almost back to Hebrews. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Many of you probably have that underlined in your Bible. Titus 3 verse 5. He saved us. How? Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We are redeemed through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is how we are saved. The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, but not the broom that sweeps it clean. The law is a dentist mirror that shows you your decay, but doesn't is not the instrument needed to fix the, the decay, the cavity. The law is a flashlight that guides you in the dark to the electric panel, but it doesn't help you flip the breaker to turn the lights on. The law is a plumb line that a framer uses to make sure something is true to vertical, but he never uses it to square the wall. So the law points out the problem of sin, but it never provides the solution. Which is why God brought in a better hope. Look at point six. Verse 19, back in Hebrews now, the last part of verse 19. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Point number six, Christ, our better hope, provides access to God. Christ, our better hope, provides access to God. That better hope in verse 19 is available, which provides access to God through the eternal priesthood of Christ. What kind of hope is it that God has provided through his Son? Look at chapter 6, verse 19. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and the one which enters within the veil. Beloved, we have a hope that is both sure and steadfast, immovable. Remember when I told you they would take these giant stones, right, and anchor them off to the in the port so that the storms, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be uh, tossed out to sea, right? Immovable, steadfast, sure. Christ is the anchor of our souls who tore the veil in two and anchored us into the Holy of Holies forever. That is our great high priest. Only Jesus Christ could accomplish that. No priest could ever accomplish that. Only our great high priest, Jesus Christ, could take us into the very presence of God by the power of his indestructible life and anchor us there forever. Amen? The hope Christ provided was better than all of the endless regulations of the Levitical priesthood and the commandments which produced it. 
Christ's priesthood made it possible for sinners to draw near to God. In fact, turn over to Hebrews 10, verse 19. We'll be there someday, Lord willing. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Where the law showed us how impossible it was to come near to God because of our sin, Jesus Christ ushering in a new covenant allows us to draw near to him, not just once, but forever. Beloved, I want you to bear in mind that these folks who are listening to this message here were under intense persecution. They were tempted to fall away and go back to Judaism again. They were tempted to go back to the old system. But the author is reminding them that Jesus Christ has, what he has accomplished for them is something the old priesthood could never do. And that now through faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, they are completely and forever reconciled with God. And because his righteousness is credited to their accounts, they have a right standing before God. Not because of their own righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness credited to them. And because they have a right standing before God, because they're justified, they are now reconciled with God. And because they're reconciled with God, they have free, unhindered, unfettered access to God forever. Eternally. At any time. Not only that, as we'll find out later, not only do we have the access to him, but he's actually there advocating for us nonstop as well. Forever. No, the hope that he's talking about is not some pie-in-the-sky hope that we often think of when we say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope, it, I hope this happens or that happens. He's talking about a hope that's sure. He's talking about a hope that's already accomplished. He's talking about a hope that's immovable and anchored within the veil of the Holy of Holies. To go back to Judaism would mean to forfeit all that access to God. So having considered all of that, what does this text have to say to us today? Let me share this quick story with you. We'll bring this to a close. During the Civil War, there was a young Union soldier who lost his father and an older brother in the war. And so he went to Washington, D.C. to see if he could get an exemption from military service so that he could go back home and help his mother and sister with the spring planting. But when he approached the White House and asked to see the president, he was turned away. Totally disheartened, he sat down on a park bench nearby. And a little boy approached him and said, You look unhappy, soldier. What's wrong? And after the soldier shared his story, the little boy took him by the hand 
And he led him in the back door of the White House, past the guards, into the president's office itself, where President Lincoln looked up and said, what can I do for you today, Tad? And Tad said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. And the soldier was not turned away. Beloved, that's what kind of access you have to God. You have access into the Holy of Holies. Every day, unfettered, unhindered, day and night. Do you appreciate just how privileged we are to be born under this new covenant and to have Jesus Christ as our great high priest? We have it so much better than the Old Testament saints that lived under the old covenant. Because what we have, they could only dream about. They could only hope that someday that would be true in their lifetime. We have the full forgiveness of sins through Christ's better sacrifice. We know our sins are as far away from us as the east is from the west. They knew their sins were as far away as the next sacrifice. We have a priest, a high priest, a great high priest within the veil, and he invites us to draw near to the very throne of God, which is the throne of grace, and to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Do you realize how special that is and what you have available to you as a believer? We can draw near at any time without fear or hesitation. And all of this is made possible by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He atoned for our sins on the cross of Calvary. He continually intercedes on behalf with the Father. He saves and he keeps his own. When I read the Old Testament, specifically the Psalms, and I see how they thirsted after God's word and longed to be in his presence, I wonder if we have that same desire today. I wonder if we just take for granted what they could only dream about. I wonder if we just assume, oh, what they would give for just one minute in the presence of the Lord instead of being set outside having the priest go in and do a sacrifice for them. Oh, what they would give for just one second in the presence of God, one minute in the presence of God. Oh, what they would give to know without a doubt that they were reconciled to God forever, eternally. And yet, the very means in which God has provided for us to be in his presence through the ministry of his spirit, mainly the reading of his word and prayer, we often slough off like a never-ending honey to-do list. I'll get to that someday. I'll, I just didn't have time today. I had to get these errands done. I, I, I didn't get up in time to do this. I, the very means by which God has provided for us to be in his presence, we push off like it's not that important. To the Old Testament saints, it was life itself. Just one day in his presence to them was worth more than a thousand days elsewhere. Is that our heart too, beloved? Do you love to be in the presence of God? When you read his word, do you know that God's spirit is interacting with his holy word and illuminating the text and drawing you in and teaching you and convicting you and exhorting you and encouraging you. I hope that's your heart. 
I hope you don't look at your Bible reading and your devotion time as something you just check off your list before you get on to the next thing you're going to do. But I hope that you realize how special it is and how gracious God is to have you born in a time under this new covenant when you have access to him at any time. When you're going through a trial, when you're going through a difficult time, when things are not going well, we often rush in there at that time. But then things get better and we go back to our life selfishly again and put him back on a shelf. But Christ died for you for so much more than that. Get into his word. Dig deep. Be in his presence. Enjoy it. Love every second of it. It's a precursor to what you'll be doing in eternity. Think about that next time. Today, perfection, access is ours through Jesus Christ. The veil has been torn in two, inviting us into the Holy of Holies. Let us come with joyful boldness to our constant and great high priest and Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder from your text here, Lord, of what should be our greatest desire, which is to be close to you, to be near to you, to draw close to you. But, Father, we often let things in this world distract us from that. We often put you aside as a lesser priority in our lives. But yet, Lord, you want us to desire you. And matter of fact, you, prayed, you paid a great price for us to have access to you something the Old Testament saints could only dream about, we now have in fulfillment through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we'd be the kind of church that would desire to be deep into your word, that would desire to be in your presence at all times, to hide your word in our hearts, to yield to the leading of your Holy Spirit, to be in this world, but not of this world. Father, thank you for the truth, the richness of your word. We love you so much, but we know we love you because you first loved us. Help us, Lord, to live a life that's glorifying to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>